Hello, and welcome to another episode of Envisioneering Exchange, the podcast where industry leaders discuss the most important topics in sustainability, climate change, buildings, and urban efficiency. I'm Vic Marinich, Global Marketing Director for Danfoss, and I'm delighted to be the host of this podcast. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, we have Michael Straboulis from Danfoss on the show to talk about what's new in the data center cooling technologies world. Michael is the Director of Business Development for Data Centers. Michael, thanks for taking the time to join the show. You're welcome, Vic. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. So today we're discussing the current state of data center cooling technologies and solutions that we see on the horizon. So maybe let's start with why is it so important that we find efficient, effective solutions for data centers? How does the energy used in data centers compare to, say, I don't know, a typical commercial building? The energy used by commercial buildings is for occupant comfort. So there's lighting, air conditioning, heating, and other services needed for a comfortable working or living environment where a few minutes or hours without them can be tolerated, though it might be uncomfortable. However, for data centers, the situation is dramatically different and availability of energy is business critical. So uptime is their business and there cannot be a disruption. And because these data centers are running all the time, they find efficient and effective solutions to run their operations. So when we talk about the energy used, I guess then it's a lot more in those data centers than it is in a typical commercial building, yeah? Yes, um, there are not exactly any numbers that show how much of the electricity is going to servers versus the cooling equipment. Maybe there is a study here and there, but um, the guess that I would venture to say is that probably 60% goes to information technology equipment and 40% goes to cooling equipment. But again, that is not an exact number and not everybody reveals what their numbers are, as you can imagine. There could be some reference studies conducted by independent industry organizations to look and validate my guess. What I have to say, however, is that the industry, the data center industry has done a phenomenal job in uh, designing very efficient information technology equipment. So they have reduced the energy used for the servers and storage and networking. And they've also done a great job in reducing the energy used for cooling with the use of smart controls, algorithms, data science, artificial intelligence, and so on. So we see more improvements in how energy is used for the information technology equipment as well as the cooling equipment in the data centers. There is more that is being done daily as operators and other stakeholders are becoming smarter about how far they can stretch every joule of energy or every watt of power that they consume and therefore save in a data center. As I recall, that's a pretty important metric, maybe a little outdated these days, right? The PUE, right? But the ratio of, of energy used in the servers compared to the energy used, I guess, really everywhere else, right? Because they don't want to waste, but use the energy really on anything but actually driving the servers, right? Exactly, exactly. The PUE is a KPI that was developed, I would say, 12 years ago or so to measure the efficiency of a data center. But then other KPIs were developed 
at the same time or a little bit later, and they're becoming more and more relevant to data center operations, such as carbon usage effectiveness, CUE, or water usage effectiveness, WUE. So these numbers are becoming pretty important as we see more and more efforts in decarbonizing data centers and improving efficiency, reducing energy waste, and things like that. Good point. I should have spelled it out earlier. PUE is the power usage effectiveness. So very good point that uh, they're really looking um, to minimize uh, consumption, the energy consumption. And part of that, of course, is cost. But then there's also a lot of talk these days about decarbonization, right, and limiting global warming. So how are data centers contributing to emissions reductions and sustainability? So there is a very strong move to capture scope one, scope two, and three emissions. And scope two and three are proving to be significantly more challenging than expected, especially scope two, because many of the suppliers to the data center industry were not prepared with the data needed to support their data center customers. So now the race is on, and those who were ahead of the game and had an early start uh, like Danfoss can respond and support with EPDs and so forth. All of the major data center operators, Vic, and the hyperscalers have published their net zero or carbon negative uh, target dates, which is great. But where I see an opportunity to significantly accelerate this is with heat recovery and reuse, especially in the U.S., where you have the biggest data centers in the world and also the biggest uh, concentration of data centers. So I have spoken elsewhere in this program about uh, taking the heat generated by data centers and sending it to a district energy loop. This is quite common in Northern and Eastern Europe, but what about the rest of Europe and North America, especially where there are very few district energy utilities? Well, we need not limit ourselves to just district energy loops. We can use the heat by employing a heat station and recover the heat and use it as is, or we can boost it to any temperature required with an electrically driven heat pump and provide it to a nearby industrial process that requires heat to run its business. So industries such as pharma, petrochemical, food processing, wood drying, breweries, medical, wastewater treatment plants, and many other industries can electrify using this heat from data centers so they can help decarbonize. This can help decarbonize both data centers and the heat hosts. Another argument I've been hearing about the heat reuse is that data centers provide low-grade heat. That's not a problem because apart from the fact that there are industries that need exactly that heat level, Heat pump technology today has advanced to such a degree that you can name your temperature level and heat pumps will meet it. Boilers can then be used to supplement or for backup, but the waste heat from a data center has to be reduced or eliminated if the data center operators are committed to meeting their decarbonization targets. Yeah, and for sure there's lots of opportunities. I guess it comes down to economics, right? How do you get the waste heat from those data centers to the the nearby users. Because as you mentioned, here in the U.S., we don't have so many district energy loops, right? Especially not district heating. I think we're probably heavy on the district cooling side, but uh, we have to get smarter about figuring out how to 
take that energy and rather than blowing it into the atmosphere somehow to put it where it's already needed anyway, right? Yeah, there can be data centers that are installed in uh, industrial parks right. with industries nearby that require these heat to run their processes. Mm -hmm. So clearly there's a lot of actually exciting things in data centers, which I guess you would expect given, right, when we talk about uh, chips and computers and AI, right, to that whole industry is very forward looking, right, and uh, very motivated. So what about on the cooling side specifically, though, what kind of solutions and trends are you seeing there when it comes to the design and construction of data centers? Thank you for asking. I am seeing more cooling solutions using closed loop water cooling. Cooling towers are becoming less popular because of the water loss to evaporation and the need to make up for it. So this is called waterless cooling, but it's not exactly waterless. It's just that it's closed loop. I'm also seeing chillers with supplemental free cooling using heat exchangers that are used to reject the heat to the atmosphere without using any vapor compression when the conditions are favorable. When the conditions are marginal or beyond the capability of the free cooling system, then the chiller can use vapor compression running as a hybrid, or it can switch off the free cooling if the conditions are unfavorable for free cooling and run 100% uh, vapor compression, picking up when free cooling can handle it, as I mentioned. So that's another trend. And I'm also seeing a transition to pressure-independent control valves in the chilled uh, water of hydronic loops in data centers driven by the need to deliver chilled water to the heat exchangers or the computer room air handling units or the coolant distribution units that need it the most, regardless of what's happening upstream or downstream of them. These PICVs or PICVs, pressure independent control valves, are very easy to set when commissioning, saving time in the commissioning of the building. And once they're set up, they guarantee design flow GPM to the heat exchanger that they're paired with independently of pressure changes in the rest of the system. So these are some of the trends. There are others, of course. Mm -hmm. And maybe we take a half step back as we start talking about some of these different cooling technologies, right? When we think of computer rooms and data centers, I guess it really can be anything from a local uh, small data center that's in like a corporate headquarters kind of thing, all the way up to the big mega centers for all the, the big players out there. So I guess, at least as I see it, right, there's air-cooled type systems, there's uh, liquid or water-cooled, and then there's immersion cooling, right? Is that kind of how you see the market uh, breaking out? And then how do you decide which of those cooling methodologies are the ones uh, that, that you select? Yeah, all of the above are applicable. And um, there is really no let's say, right or wrong methodology to use. It all depends on the application and the heat load density of the racks and servers, as well as the rest of the IT information technology equipment in the data center. This is specified by the end user or the operators or the consulting uh, mechanical engineers, depending on what type of compute process is running in the data center facility. For example, data centers running business platforms have a much different load profile and cooling specification than a supercomputing site, for example, or a hyperscaler. So all different technologies apply. You just have to know what the operator is doing with their facility. Mm -hmm. Okay, it makes sense. So liquid cooling and immersion cooling are really two different things. But liquid cooling, then at least to me, I mean, we're talking water getting near computer chips and 
Anybody who's ever dropped their iPhone into the swimming pool knows that those two things don't uh, usually mix very well. So what are the pros and cons of working with liquid cooling as opposed to just going on airside all the time? There are no pros and cons, as I mentioned in the earlier question. It depends on what's in the data center. So when we talk about liquid cooling, the data center industry is referring exclusively to how the microchips on the servers are cooled. They are not referring to HVAC terminology of air-cooled or water-cooled chillers, for example. They don't care about what's happening on the chiller side or the rooftop side. All they care about is how you cool the chips. So what is happening with chips is that they're getting smaller and more powerful. The heat density of the chips is rising, and air cannot remove the heat from these chips. So there is a shift to liquid cooling of the chips and the servers and racks therein. So there are two types of liquid cooling. There's immersion liquid cooling, and there's direct-to-chip liquid cooling. And the liquids are not in contact exactly with the chips. Okay, when you have an immersion tank and you immerse the servers in them, yeah, maybe the servers are surrounded by liquid, but the chips are sitting in a in a secure environment, let's call it. But they have to be in touch with the liquid through appropriate heat exchangers, cold plates, that remove the heat and place the heat in the liquid. So, as I said before, there are two types of cooling. There's immersion liquid cooling and direct-to-chip. And within them, there is single-phase cooling or liquids used or two-phase liquids used. And liquid cooling has been around for a very long time. I saw my first liquid-cooled supercomputer in the early 90s. This is 40 years ago. So it's been a long time. What's changing, however, is the application methodology. Liquid cooling has become smaller. It's more modular. It's more robust. It's scalable. New liquids are coming. Dielectric uh, fluids are coming into the picture. So they have better heat transfer properties that transport the heat away from the chips and servers to heat exchangers who then reject the heat to air or water with or without uh, vapor compression. So it's a very complex uh, ecosystem, but because of the heat density of the microchips, it's becoming a very big discussion in the industry. Mm -hmm. Right. And maybe circle back to something you touched on just a little while ago about waterless cooling as another evolving technology. Why are data centers considering this? And I assume when we say waterless cooling, we're not talking about waterless on the chips, but more on the uh, process side outside the building, right? So can you maybe do a bit deeper dive on waterless cooling and what we're talking about there? Yeah, waterless cooling was driven by the necessity to save water. And as we mentioned before, WUE, water usage effectiveness, particularly in areas where water is scarce and uh, data centers need to be cooled. So the industry has come up with a way to stop the um, usage of cooling towers and using uh, closed loop water systems that are more flexible and more practical in these situations. They're economical because you can run 100% free cooling if you want to, or you can run hybrid like I mentioned before, where you run also a vapor compression cycle if the free uh, waterless free cooling can handle it. The drawback, 
however, is that some of the free cooling heat exchangers that are on, let's say, chillers, for example, these heat exchangers on chillers become multi-row or multi-slab. They become quite deep. So they are in need of frequent and regular cleaning to maintain efficiency. And there could be difficulty in swapping them out if there is ever a need to replace such a heat exchanger uh, because you would have multiple slabs. So maintenance and serviceability need to be of paramount importance for the OEMs that are designing these systems. The data center manufacturers, installers, designers are really focused on energy reduction, use of water reduction. How do you see renewables kind of folding into that discussion, right? You know, solar, wind in data centers. Is that something they look at and consider or how do you see that? Yeah, data centers are working very closely with utilities to secure their power needs, as you know, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. Renewables have been an important part of those discussions. And this is where you see a lot of announcement in the news that uh, many data center operators have been sourcing most or all of their power from renewable sources. So there are also... PPAs are purchase agreements that stipulate how much renewable energy will be provided to the data centers and from where. Will it be solar? Will it be wind? Will it be other? So renewable energy resources are a fact of life in data centers today. But that being said, there is an opportunity here, and I'm not the expert, but I know that renewable energy comes off of solar or wind sources as direct current. And then when it enters the data center, it's converted to alternating, only to be converted to DC current again multiple times in the information technology equipment. What about powering a large part of the data center with DC current and stepping down the voltage where needed as needed, avoiding the multiple DC to AC to DC conversions? And every time you do such a conversion, you lose efficiency and you generate heat, and you know this is over the entire life cycle of the data center equipment. I think that can be a future topic of discussion with an industry expert or a specialist. Yeah. Uh, already planting seeds for the next topic. I appreciate yes, that, Michael. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Giving you ideas. Yeah, thanks. So everybody knows, right, the sun's not always shining, right? The wind's not always blowing. But as you mentioned, uptime on data centers is critical, right? A commercial building, just said a few minutes, hours, whatever it is. Okay, you have some maybe annoyed, sweaty people, but uh, not the end of the world. Data centers, if suddenly you can't uh, use your ATM card or access your bank because there's no data center, you're in trouble, right? So given that there's this big push to renewables when it comes to um, uptime and reliability of the data centers, are data centers kind of sacrificing efficiency and so on for the, uh, the ability to work with your renewables or how do you see that relationship? So renewables, solar and wind have been part of the data center and industry for a long time, and they have resolved all the issues of uh, availability and reliability. I have not seen a trade-off if there is one. I only see upside, more reliable equipment, more efficient equipment, and lots of sensors and connected devices that predict or prevent failures and improve efficiency. It is usually negligence or human error that cause downtime 
And I don't think it's an issue with the renewables or the systems inside the data center that actually are very robust and secure uh, uptime for any operations, whether they are credit card transactions or other transactions that occur over the uh, internet and uh, World Wide Web and uh, data centers. Mm-hmm. Or my kids having uh, ChatGPT write their term papers for them, right? You know, <laughs> yeah, that, exactly. It's another topic and it's uh, growing. That's right. Uh, making yeah. data centers more and more uh, necessary. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I don't know where my kids would be without it, right? Um, so, so it's good that we're able to incorporate renewables into uh, into the data centers and without sacrificing efficiency or runtime. But a lot of the stuff we've talked about really is around new data centers, uh, you, you know, new designs on the data centers. What about the existing data centers? Are there opportunities to um, retrofit them with more efficient cooling systems or are there challenges to doing that? Yes, Not all data centers use the latest and most energy efficient technologies that are available today because of a variety of reasons. There are financial constraints, there are physical constraints, and uptime constraints. So if we look at them individually, financial constraints, prices for cooling technologies are very stable and predictable, so the industry can budget and plan without any surprises. So there are little or no supply chain issues that will cause spiking uh, prices as seen in other market sectors. So the financial constraints for somebody to renovate or retrofit their data center are really minimal in the data center industry. Looking at the next one, which is physical constraints. Well, cooling equipment is getting smaller and more efficient. So they don't require the same square footage or volume of area or volume of space that you would otherwise dedicate a long time ago. And on top of that, there have been modular data centers that are available as an option, and they include a variety of modules that you can plug and play in order to retrofit your data center with the newest cooling solutions or ITE solutions for that matter. And then there are also uptime constraints. So if you have an older data center, it's in your interest to put in newer equipment that is more robust, more resilient, more uh, secure, so that all of these newer technologies or latest technologies are included. And all these technologies are actually in use for many years in comfort cooling, and they are now being modified and upgraded to meet the more rigorous demands of data center operations. So it's not that they're not proven, it's just that they're migrating into data centers and retrofitting is an option that is considerably less of a challenge than it might have been a few years back. And does that include even uh, some of the solutions you're talking about, you know, free cooling, uh, heat recovery, uh, waterless cooling, all those things you think no problem to upgrade? Yes, as long as there is power availability in the data center, then you can put all of these uh, there. Even if the power is limited, you can select and size the equipment accordingly. And today, you don't need as many watts as you did before to run the same equipment in the same size equipment, let's say cooling size equipment. In fact, you probably consume less watts for more cooling. So it's less of a constraint than it was before. That was all the questions I had. Is there anything uh, I forgot to ask, forgot to mention, Michael, that you want to uh, bring up here last minute? 
I think um, there are some technologies that are transferable from some of the other industries to data centers. For example, I mentioned before that heat recovery is seen at hospital campuses, university campuses, airports and the like. And this technology has to migrate and has to apply in data centers, given how much heat is generated out of a data center. So I think this is a very good application where many people will benefit from technology transferred like this. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Well, thanks, Michael. That's it for this episode of Envisioneering Exchange. I'd like to thank my guest, Michael Straboulis of Danfoss, for joining us. Don't forget to subscribe to Envisioneering Exchange on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate, review, and share it with your network. Thanks for listening and talk to you next time. This podcast is for information purposes only. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the Envisioneering Exchange podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and not necessarily represent those of Danfoss LLC and its employees. Danfoss LLC is not responsible and does not verify for accuracy any of the information contained in the podcast series available for listening on this site. This podcast series does not constitute professional advice or services. This podcast, including Danfoss LLC and the producers, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects of information contained herein. Opinion of guests are their own, and Danfoss LLC in this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about the guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is available for private, non-commercial use only. You may not edit, modify, or redistribute this podcast. The developers of the Envisioneering Exchange podcast site assume no liability for any activities in connection with this podcast or for use of this podcast in connection with any other web website, computer, or playing device.